I don't know about you, but it was a it was a sweet day in worship this morning. At least at nine o'clock, it was just uh, I was really appreciating the people I was sitting next to, number one, and worshiping alongside. Uh, and I was also just hearing God's sweet and tender voice in the liturgy today, and it was moving. And I feel humbled and grateful for His gift. Um, it's been a tumultuous week for our nation. It's been a tumultuous week for many of us, uh, just personally and interpersonally, whether or not this stuff has directly affected you or not. And it's just good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be uh, remembering these sort of cosmic and top-level realities that God's in control. Um, and that, you know, just at the end, when we were that final prayer that we pray at the end after the communion liturgy, that we'll go through in a few weeks, but... Just that one of the purposes of receiving the Lord's Supper is to be remember that to remember that we are uh, members in corporate in the body of Christ and and citizens of a kingdom, a citizens of a kingdom that know no national and racial and ethnic boundaries, but something that sort of um, supersedes the citizenship and overwhelms the citizenship we have. Many people, some of my favorite worship theologians like to use this metaphor that the worship service, when the people of God gather, it ceases to be national soil and it becomes like an embassy of heaven. And if you know what an embassy is, it is foreign soil on a nation's land, right? And when we gather for worship, it really does cease to be American soil and becomes the land of heaven, for a moment when we gather, it becomes the future brought to us, the kingdom of God made visible in these ordinary means of creaturely broken preaching and the Lord's table. And we get glimpses, little glimpses of the freedom that's on the other side of all this bondage. Um, and I just felt some of that and I was blown away and grateful for that. Let's pray and then we'll walk through a little bit more morning prayer. Oh God, we thank you so much for your sweet voice offering words of comfort to us uh, in your word. We thank you for reminding us of whose we are. We thank you for reminding us of what country we ultimately belong to. Um, and we thank you for the gift of song, the gift of your table, gift of preaching, all meant to draw us to you and to your comforting word. And I, I do pray, God, that as we dissect and think through these prayers and the beginning of the morning prayer liturgy, that you be pleased ultimately to... Show us Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, I wanted to review some of the big points. Each of you should have gotten two sheets of paper. One is front and back. This one isn't front and back, but they'll have a front and back of sort of the first two pages of our liturgy. And then the other is a hymn that we will sing at the end of class today that sum up a lot of what we're talking about. But by way of review, I'm going to review this every week until you're nauseated by it, until you're just like, this is, you know, coming out of your pores so that when you think about what the job of the liturgy is every week, you come with these two conclusions that the goals of our class are to help us to better connect head and heart in what we do. And the goal, the other goal of this class is to tune our ears to hear the gospel. We want to be able ultimately to hear God speaking and declaring his love and His faithfulness and His good word to us in Jesus. And hopefully as a result of this class, even with you know these crazy diagrams and, and this thing that you, know, you thought the liturgy was complex and now I've made it even more complex for you, 
Lord have mercy, that's not my goal. But it is to kind of, you know, get into the weeds in order to get back out of the weeds, ultimately so that this happens, so that you hear the gospel more clearly in the worship service and the other things um, fade a little bit more. And the heart of the prayer book is unleashing, remember this, the Word of God is living and active. That's what we went over. We looked at that in Hebrews. The Word of God is living and active. So it's the, the goal of worship at Advent, the goal of this liturgy, the goal of this stuff is, is that the Word of God might be unleashed to convert your heart through the power of the Gospel. And so we said that that's the ultimate thing is to allow the Word of God, the living and active Spirit of Christ, to be moving among the people of God to do this work in our hearts of almost like reconverting us. And yes, salvation is once for all. But there's a reality that the reformers believed in as they read the scripture that said, you and I still, even as we are saved, have this thing called flesh in our members. This thing that Paul variously called flesh, other times called the old man or the old creature, the old person. Um, And this flesh is just hell-bent, literally hell-bent on denying Jesus and the need for him. And you see it in my, that, that's the whole reason for Romans 7. I do things that I don't want to do. And then I, I, I want to do some things that I don't end up doing them. You know, I see this, I wanted to post this week, uh, on Facebook, just, you know, I feel like God has, uh, given me, I, mean, I feel, and I really don't mean this by any stretch of exaggeration, but uh, the reason I am a parent is to show me for the failure that I am. Like, I just feel, my failure so acutely in being a father and just how messed up that is. And uh, I just blow it. And I'm able to, I guess maybe as a pastor, I'm able to sort of hide these things and maybe as a husband slightly, but as a dad, I am just, I feel like I'm ruining my children and that there's no hope, you know? Uh, and I think God is doing that just to continue to unveil the curtain of my own heart and to drive me to the cross and remind me that, that that's my only hope, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's unleashing the Word of God to do that work of pulling back and exposing the flesh, the old creature, for the fraud that you are, and then saying, and yet, there is one who lived for you and died for you, and because of his life and death, God declares to you right now, look, my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then out of that pleasure, out of that joy and that security and that freedom, come the good works, come the life lived unto God because we're free. We're not trying to sort of manage God's perception of us and manage others' perception of us because of the freedom that we find. That's ultimately what we hope happens on a weekly basis in with the Word of God in worship. And then so last week we started opening up morning prayer and we said, oh my goodness, we've got all these elements in morning prayer. How do we make sense of them? We said there's a two-part movement to morning prayer. The first part is the word read. And these are sort of my descriptions, but they're, the, the movements are clear. But my, my descriptions of these movements are sort of my descriptions. The word read, this whole first half of morning prayer. And the second half is the word preached. And these two cycles uh, generally take us on, on this journey a journey from uh, where we are through a little bit of journey, and this is what we're going to focus on, this, this little up and down this morning, to God's heart, where we're able to pray and speak intimate words to God because He's wooed us and drawn us to Himself in the liturgy. 
and then the second half, the word preached, is meant to sort of have us stay in God's heart where God declares marvelous, wonderful truths and good uh, good words to us and then sends us back out into the world for another week of continued worship. You know, So this is the arc of morning prayer. This is the arc of, of what we're trying to accomplish uh, here and what God is, is really trying to accomplish in us is to draw us to his heart so that we can say those things that we need to say to our Father, you know, as we're leaning on His breast. And then He can send us out into the world to declare to others and to showcase to others, this is who Je- this is the heart of God. I've heard Him myself. I am a witness to what God does. You know, I, I've seen, I've tasted and I've seen. That's the idea of, of the, the journey of morning prayer. So, we're at this point. Last week, we sort of talked about what we do during the voluntary and what, what, how we might think of that. When this first hymn starts, I might say this first. Um, someone sitting next to me asked me this question. It's a great question. We have the hymn and the hymn number, and then we have oftentimes some unintelligible thing in italics, right? Like, what in the world is this? It's obviously not the hymn name. Uh, it's the tune name, because uh, when you're when you're engaging with old hymns, it actually was a mix and match enterprise. Uh, old hymns were... A hymn strictly is not the music. It is, the, it is the text. It is the lyrics, the stanzas. And it can be paired with a lot of different things. The classic example is, did you know that Amazing Grace in common meter could be paired with a lot of different other tunes, including this tune, Gilligan's Island theme. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now... Lord, you know, Lord have mercy, we'll never do that because, you know, it doesn't fit the text, right? But the idea is that uh, you can almost have different uh, mix and match ideas behind tunes being used with hymns as a way to bring out different affective hues. It's almost like looking at a diamond from a different angle or with different light. You know, I, I've seen that effect where you have a hymn that's set to a different tune and all of a sudden... Um, it takes on a totally different meaning. It was that way for me with the hymn Rock of Ages. Its classic tune sounds very triumphant to me. And the first time I heard it set to a tune that was more uh, melancholic and heartfelt, I realized I, it, it was actually the first time I understood the hymn. Uh, that it was supposed to be a, a comfort to me, not some sort of kind of militaristic triumph, but more of a Jesus is my hiding place kind of thing. So... Um, you know, that's the power of how these, how music weds itself with him. But that's what's going on. We have the hymn number and the tune name. That's, that's what's going on there. But more importantly, I want to start asking the, the question about this procession, what we do. Uh, the procession is a symbol, and it's meant to be a symbol that helps us to understand what's happening spiritually in worship in that moment. You have the choir processing in. You have people dressed in white, which is very symbolic and very biblical. And I want to open up a passage of Scripture and read it before you from Revelation. Um, because this is where the concept of a physical procession is, is trying to mirror, mirror the spiritual perception or procession that's going on in heaven. And so I hope that as I read this, this starts to stick in your spiritual mind and with your spiritual eyes as you see these ordinary people sort of bumbling down the aisle, you might think of something actually going on, truly going on, that we can't see with the physical eyes, but we can see with the eyes of faith. So Revelation 7, uh, 9 to 17 says this, After this I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on His throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of those elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Before the throne, day and night, actually happening in, in heaven is this vision. The saints, the people of God who have gone before, your loved ones who have died in Christ, are now around that throne worshiping Him. The Christians in Syria who have been beheaded because they've claimed Christ and not a false God are triumphant dressed in white around the throne. And day and night they praise Him. And they're all gathered around the mighty Lamb of God, the symbol of weakness triumphant, the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, the people that you know that have gone on to be with the Lord, the saints that we read about in the Bible, the heroes of the faith that we read about in church history, they're all gathered. And part of the symbol of the procession is to remind us that as we enter into worship, we're entering into an already moving stream of all these people gathered around the throne of God, worshiping Him. The people that you and I love, that we mourn their loss, are with Him triumphant up there. And I know it just, it looks like some just tired ritual of watching this procession go. But that's what it's meant to awaken us to, is that the people who are worshiping at Advent right now are actually more than you can see with your eyes. The people who are gathered around the throne are, are way more. You know, attendance doesn't fluctuate in heaven. <laughs> it's always there. And if we had the eyes of faith to see that we're gathered up into those throngs already singing, it's, we're jumping into an already moving stream of worship when we enter. The procession is meant to give us that vision and that picture. Now, what's up with the crosses? Okay, um, the crosses, I would like to say, are uh, in the most crude sense, processional bookmarks. They're like little markers for various sections of the procession. This first one that you see is called the choir cross. Uh, and it's, it's meant to just bring the choir in. It's the one that leads the choir in. The next cross that you'll often see is the clergy cross. Uh, and after that falls the people who are ordained for the ministry of the word. 
and then finally the Dean's Cross, which they all look the same size, but this one is the small one. Uh, that doesn't mean that Andrew's unimportant or anything. But it goes right before Andrew, just to just to do that. And um, so here's what I'd like to say about these. Uh, in their best sense, they're meant to draw us to that vision in Revelation, where we see the Lamb of God lifted up above us before the foundations of the world. Um, and that's why some people, and I think this is a personal choice that one makes of devotion, bow to these crosses. And here's, here's the difference. If it, and it's all about the heart. If, if in your heart, as you bow before these crosses going before you, are you bowing before the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, whom, uh, who is behind and on and uh, around and in our worship? Is, and if that's what it's about, awesome. If it's just some empty ritual because you've done it for a long time and you've always done it, or you think that there's some sort of magic in these things, that's actually not the right reason to do that. And that's not what we believe at, at Advent. There's sort of nothing special in this metal and wood but everything special in the one to whom they point. And if I could give you a vision for what's maybe best about the way to think about these crosses or the cross going before us, is do you remember when Jesus was alone with Nicodemus in John 3? Read this passage sometime where we get, you know, John 3:16, for God so loved the world. Jesus was actually preaching these to Nicodemus, but he said something very interesting in that passage. When he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And what was Jesus talking about? There was this episode back in Numbers, this really odd occurrence where uh, Israel, upon, just, uh, receiving the judgment of God, was uh, breaking out in some kind of plague. And God said, what I want you to do is to hoist up a, a vision of a snake on a pole. And that, by the way, that's why the medical profession has that that symbol as as the, because it's a symbol of healing. I know it looks weird to us, but the original vision from Numbers was that as the people of God looked up at this snake on a pole in the wilderness, they would be healed. And what I want us to do uh, as we see these crosses is to remember these words of Jesus, that as I am lifted up, you can look to me and you will find the healing that you're looking for. As the crosses in, you know, pass, pass by on our way. Lift up your eyes and remember that this worship service today that we're joining into is for your healing. That Jesus is here to give you words from his cross about things that are a total game changer for your life and for your healing. Uh, and so as you see them, have that vision of the snake lifted up in the wilderness and of Jesus saying, just as Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And it's kind of cool that as I was sitting in the congregation, the sea of people, I can't really see anything clearly, but I see the cross. And I know that Jesus is for me. And I know that healing comes from Him. During, uh, during the procession, allow the visual cues to help you remember that worship is a participation with the heavenly throngs and that we step into an already moving stream. And when you see the crosses, and again, I'm just sort of summarizing what I've written on this sheet. It's kind of like a take-home thing. As you see the crosses, think of the snake in the wilderness. All right? 
So we have that hymn in procession. And it's meant to just sort of orient and calibrate our heart to get what's happening as we worship together. And then we have uh, what are called the opening sentences. And the opening sentences, are they function like a call to worship. This is interesting. Before Cranmer got his hands on the liturgy, in the 16th century, when, uh, when Roman worship was just the thing that everybody did, what opened worship then? It was either a Hail Mary or the Lord's Prayer. Not bad, but Cranmer saw, he said, and the reformer said, it's a little odd that we begin worship saying something to God. <laughs> we need to begin worship with God having the first word, saying something to us. Because we believe that the word of God is what births faith and action and fruit in us. And even more than that, Cranmer and the reformers were just sensitive to the fact that you and I, as fleshly creatures, are always tempted to come into worship on our own accord, or thinking that we've got something to bring to the table, or I've been pretty good this week, I haven't really blown it that much, and so I'm going to come in and I'm going to Give God my worship. It's been a good week. Haven't sinned a lot, you know. Only the little ones. And even those, I mean, God, you know, God, I'm just great. You know, I didn't murder. I didn't do anything that I saw on the news this past week. And goodness, I haven't engaged in the type of dialogue that my friends have on Facebook this week with regards to the election. I'm doing pretty well, you know. And the reformers were just sensitive to the fact that you and I are always going to be prone to enter into worship by starting that way with our own words to God of, God, I love you. God, I'm coming to you now. Even if I believe this gospel thing, you know, at least as I start here, I just want to say I, I kind of bring something to the table, you know. Uh, and we'll get to this more in the communion liturgy because the communion liturgy does an even better job of sort of pinning our flesh to the wall, as it were. Uh, but this is just to say, hey, flesh, old Adam, old Eve, you don't get the first word. God's word does. So uh, we have this opening procession that's sort of meant to gather our heart and then worship really begins with this word, you know, and opening sentences of varying degrees or some sort of call uh, to worship. It's, it's some sort of declaration of God to his people. And, and there are various ones that from the prayer book we can choose, but they all sort of serve the same function. It's interesting that in the 79 prayer book, they got a, that thematically they started going in all sorts of directions. And yet the reformers in Cranmer were very specific about the types of opening sentences that they wanted at the beginning. And they were all some form of a call to repentance. They were all some form that said, believers, we've sinned and we need Jesus kind of uh, idea. And the purpose was they really believed that there's no other way into worship apart from acknowledging our sin and recognizing that the only way we're going to be led into worship properly is through our worship leader, capital W, capital L, Jesus Christ. The only way we're, is, is hiding behind and in the true celebrant, Christ himself, right? Uh, so the whole idea of the opening sentences is to give God the first word. It's God's word that holds us together. And so it makes sense that right after God's strong, thunderous word happens, that the first thing we do, I mean, this is very uh, just appropriate. The first thing we do is confess our sin. But before we get there, 
there's something that the the minister says in this little blank slot here that I want us to read uh, together and look at because it's very precious and these words are very uh, specific in in their choice. Have you ever noticed uh, these two words that begin a lot of these old English liturgies? Especially if you've gone to a recent wedding, this is still often the way weddings begin. Dearly beloved. There's, it's, it's very purposeful because what's about to happen is something not so comfortable. That God would begin uh, through his minister of reminding the people of God, you're loved. You're loved. This is going to be a safe place for some of this spiritual surgery to happen. You're loved. You're loved. <laughs> Jesus loves you. <laughs> uh, that's the whole point. Is that right at the beginning, dearly beloved, dearly beloved, it's like a parade of beautiful children and their parents are like, what are my parents doing in this fishbowl? Um, <clears throat> right at the top of worship, dearly beloved. I have these moments acutely as a parent where I recognize I'm going to be taking my kid into something that's not going to be pleasant, like the doctor's office for shots. Or this one time when uh, Jesse, my youngest son, had to have a surgery and he was like four years old and he didn't understand. He was going to have to be knocked out and have his ears worked on for three hours. Um, and the kinds of things that you say to your kid right before then are just like, son, I love you so much. And I'm just going to, I know you don't get what's going on and why you're on this bed right now, but I love you and you're going to be okay. But doctors are going to have to sort of do things to you that are going to help you to hear better and help your ears a little bit. But buddy, just know that I love you and you're going to get through this. Or uh, as we start approaching the doctor's office with my daughter, who tends to be the one who wears her emotions on her sleeve the most, um, I'll say things like, sweetie, honey, I love you. You're going to get some shots today, but just know it's, it's going to be for your good and everything's going to be okay on the other side of this. And I go, and I just sort of give her these words and, and remind her how much I love her. And you can hear her say, yes, yes. That's kind of what this moment is in worship. Dearly beloved, God says to you, son, daughter, I plan on doing things to you that are going to hurt a little bit. Nothing short of death and resurrection in you yet again. But it's for your good and I just want you to trust me. So remember that I love you right at the beginning of this, you know? That, so these word, these two words, right as we begin worship, right after God has the first word, the next thing out of his mouth through the broken ministers, dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of Almighty God. And just in case you thought that, that Episcopalian Anglican worship wasn't charismatic, <laughs> right here, we believe that God is actually present in our worship service. We've come in the presence of Almighty God. This isn't just mere ritual. It's filled with God's very spirit and presence, that He's here, and that He's here in a way that we should be able to feel and know and hear and taste with all our senses, His interaction with us. We've come together in the presence of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. He's not just some distant God. He's a, a God who loves His children, our Heavenly Father. And then this is, if, if you wanted the purposes of worship, at the beginning of morning prayer, uh, Cranmer and the Reformers help lay out what the purposes of worship, and that's why I've set them off in three, so we can hear this as, as the minister says these things. We've come together in the presence of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to do what? Why are we here? To render thanks for the great benefits we've received at His hands. 
You know, it's thanksgiving. It's remembering because we've forgotten just how blessed we are that God has given us so many benefits in His great grace through Jesus Christ. Because you and I in our flesh are always tempted to look at the negative and to see all the things wrong with our life and see all the things that are wrong with America and wrong with the world. And it's just a re- worship is supposed to be a reminder of the benefits that you and I have in Christ Jesus. Another purpose of worship is to set forth His most worthy praise. We heard a wonderful sermon about that this morning from Andrew. But yeah, it's really to reorient our hearts, to recognize, despite the fact that you and I over the course of this week have been praising a lot of other things and people and offering up the adoration of our heart to 10,000 other idols. In a sense, you can think of worship as that moment of recalibration of what we were designed to do, which is to worship the one true and living triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're meant to set forth His most worthy praise. Like, that's why we're here. Get on board, Christian. To hear His holy word. And again, as we talked about, this hearing doesn't come just audibly. It comes in, we hear His word in in tasting. We hear His word in praying in all these different ways. We've come for these purposes. And, And also, to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others, those things that are necessary for our life and salvation. So it's after we've heard the great grace of God, we're here to start asking the Father for the things that we need, our daily bread, things for our brothers and sisters that we need. You know, I was having a conversation with uh, someone I was sitting next to after communion, and it was just like, after you receive communion, let's, what do you, you know, what can I pray for, for you? It's that idea of we're here together on this lonely, hard earth. (laughs) And we're here to ask and be a community that does these things. So these are the purposes of worship. We're reminded of these purposes every time we gather. We're reminded that we're loved, that we come together actually in God's presence, and then what we're here to do, to render thanks, to set forth praise, to hear His Word, and to pray and ask for things. And so, and this is a real transitional moment, that we may prepare ourselves in heart and mind. You see the kind of holistic language right there? Prepare ourselves in heart and mind to worship Him. Let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins that we may obtain forgiveness by His infinite goodness and mercy. And so you find these loved bookends here. Dearly beloved, we may find forgiveness by His infinite goodness and mercy. That's what we're here to do. You know, get, get through all the layers of life and all the complexities of what's going on in any given week. We are here to come to His table so that he can offer those words again that you and I need to hear, that we're a little deaf to hearing. Um, so that's really, that, that whole thing, that happens in like 15 seconds, <laughs> right? The minister reads this and says this to us, but hear all these things echoing and washing through your heart. And then at that moment, I just want to talk about this posture of kneeling. I don't know about you, but there are times in worship where I'm just not in it to win it. I'm just not feeling it. My mind is 10,000 other places, like how upset I am with my kids or what happened that morning or someone who decided that it was the really appropriate time to complain about something in Advent right before the service began. And just sort of, like I've had pastors call this getting slimed, like Ghostbusters. You get, right before service, someone comes up to you and slimes you, you know? And you're like, ah, dearly beloved, you know? Uh, And you have to start the service. But whatever happens, you just sort of, we don't, enter into this. And I find sometimes, not all the times, when my heart's not in it, my body leads the way. 
and it starts to help my heart kind of get in that mode. And that's what I love about all our actions. And I'm going to point out as we go through these actions and what we do. Um, but kneeling, the power of kneeling, the power of bowing our bodies and just saying, I don't, I, I surrender. I don't bring anything to the table. God help me. You know, apart from you lifting me up, I collapse into a heap of sin and brokenness here. The power of that sometimes thaws and warms my cold heart to be ready to say these words that we say. Almighty and most merciful Father. And this beautiful prayer of confession. Just beautiful. I need these words and I find new things in them. And I'm sure you who have been worshiping with these words for 30 years have not have found that this kind of isn't exhaustible. Do you know the reason it's not exhaustible? Is because it's full of Scripture. The reason it's it's inexhaustible is because these words and these quotes and I've uh, they're on your paper, so you don't need to write them down um, necessarily. But look at the look at the amount of quotation and use of Scripture that gets sort of stitched into this prayer of confession that feels like once you read it, it flows very naturally. And yet all these things come forth from the mind and the heart of, uh, of Cranmer, who is soaking in the word of God. And before we just briefly go into this and then close, I do want to say um, worship at its best is what's even our response, even the time where we're talking to God, even that response is a gift. Even that response is not something we can do on our own, but the words we give back to God are a gift from God empowered by His Spirit. And what I mean by that, and what I want you to realize, is that you and I don't even know quite what to pray to God, and so God gives us words to pray back to Him in response to the very word that He's spoken. Do you see how much the Word of God is living and active in worship? such that even your best response is a gifted one and that filled with His Holy Spirit, even the things that you say back to God in response are stuff that God has given to you to say. What a generous God that we have. Not only does He provide uh, worship and words to prompt us, but the very things that we are to say back to Him are His very gifts to us as well. Do you see how gifted this whole worship experience is? That in the whole dialogue of worship, uh, we have by His Spirit been given the very words to say back to Him. If I were to focus on a few verses, look up these verses sometime, the ones I've underlined, Matthew 23 and Luke 18 in particular, because Cranmer is hearkening to a couple episodes in Scripture. In Matthew uh, 23, 23, he's hearkening to this moment uh, where... Jesus is pronouncing woes against the Pharisees. He says, you've done a bunch of things you shouldn't have. And what you should have done, you haven't done. He's pronouncing woes to Pharisees. And as we pray these prayers, (laughs) we are confessing our inner Pharisee. We are confessing we are self-righteous. We are the Pharisees that Jesus is calling out and exposing and showing, you know. And then this other passage, uh, Luke 18 Right here. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon me. What does that come from? That comes from the moment where Jesus is comparing the prayers of two individuals. One is the prayer of a Pharisee who says, 
Oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him. You know? And Jesus is saying, that's not the prayer that you should be praying. (laughs) But he says, look at this one. Look at this publican who can't find a good thing to pray to God, but is just saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. He beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We're given the publican's words to pray in our confession. And so yet again, God is sort of beating back the flesh through this prayer and exposing our inner Pharisee. This confession of sin, this whole movement in worship to the bottom, we're at that bottom point right there, is meant to do something to us, to to show our flesh that we don't bring anything to the table. Um, And it's meant to do this in the words of the hymn that we're about to sing. As you come to God, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. You know, that perfect Christian that you want to be, Stop dreaming about this because all the fitness he requires to enter into worship is to feel your need of him. What do you bring to worship on a weekly basis? Your need. What's your entry ticket into worship? Your lack of anything to bring to worship. That's your entry ticket, right? And so that's how, uh, that's how I want to close today as we, as we pray. Uh, meditate on these words of the confession. They're beautiful. Meditate on the scriptural passages they come from. We're going to sing all four verses of Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Terrific tune. Terrific text is a minor tune, but sing out and allow, allow the, allow this. This is very much an articulation of all that we've said so far. The purposes of worship. Let's sing. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. 
He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. I love that third verse. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Do you like that? There's a little bit of a scolding there, right? It's like you think that if you just wait to come to God when you're, you're looking good and feeling good, you're never going to really come if you're honest, right? So I will arise and go to Jesus and He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 benefits, 10,000 charms. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.